Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. This morning, um, I have a message for you that recalls a a message that I, I gave at the start of 2020, the very first Sunday of 2020. I shared a message that was effectively a vision for the decade, which which said that the Lord wants to restore the joy of our worship, rebuild apostolic community, and release everyone in the game. Now, you said, Ian, you said that two weeks ago. Well, if, I, if you don't get sick of me saying that, I'm doing something wrong, all right? Because I really believe it's what the Lord is doing among us. And the idea with that tagline, and there's a new sign uh, on the, the, in the landing in Bethlehem. When you come in and out, you'll see that. And the idea is so much of modern churchianity has turned into, and I use that word advisedly, it's become a spectator sport where the majority sit and watch and support the professionals who are out there doing God's will. Those, you know, the, the professionals are out there doing the game. But that's pretty much exactly the opposite of what Ephesians 4 says is God's heart for the church. Ephesians 4 says that the work of the ministry is given to the saints. And that leaders are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so leaders are not the star players. Leaders at, at, at most are like player coaches. They're out on the field, but they're given a particular position to help everyone else play their game to their utmost. And so at the end of the month, we're going to enter a series where we delve deeper into the idea of rebuilding, of restoring through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But today I kind of have a foundational message before we get there. And the question that I want to ask is, okay, if the saints are the ones who were meant to do the work of the ministry, well, what is it that makes us qualified for that ministry? What is it? What gives you or me or anyone the right to represent Jesus on the field? And the answer is the title of the message today, which is that it's our first slide. We are sufficient only as vanquished and vulnerable victors in Christ. We are sufficient only as vanquished and vulnerable victors in Christ. Have you ever heard such alliteration? (laughs) I almost went with surrendered and sacrificed sons, but you know, the V's were a little more distinctive. So turn with me or turn your eyes to the screen or turn your Bible on to 2 Corinthians 2. And we're going to read verses 14 to 17. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 17. And this is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. 
I don't know about you, but the first Corinthians letter, the book of first Corinthians, I'm much more familiar with than the book of second Corinthians, but second Corinthians is one of Paul's most personal, most revealing and vulnerable works. And he was writing to the church in Corinth. If you know Paul's story, you know that Paul spent several years in Corinth establishing a church, discipling, raising leaders. And so he felt very attached to this work in Corinth. Very rarely did he spend so much time in one place building a church. And so when he moved on to Ephesus, we find out that he faced trials unlike anything he'd ever faced before. And we don't know exactly what happened, but when you read the whole letter of 2 Corinthians, this is what Paul says. He says he was so utterly burdened beyond his strength that he despaired of life itself. Now, that's one thing when you read it on a Facebook post. It's another thing when you read it from a man who's been imprisoned and tortured and shipwrecked and stoned and deserted by friends and family and whipped and, you know, These are not light words when someone like Paul says he went through something that made him despair of life itself. And so as Paul's writing this second letter to the Corinthians, he's been, he's been through kind of a personal hell. And part of the reason that he's worried about this church in Corinth is that uh, not only that, but he was going through a personal attack from other teachers, from other leaders that were challenging his competence. They were challenging his authority. And so you put all these things together and Paul was in a really difficult spot. He's worried about the endurance of his work in Corinth that he's poured his life into so much. And yet you see the Corinthian church is having all these issues. And not only that, but he's being challenged on the legitimacy of his ministry as a whole, of his worthiness to be called an apostle. And all that having gone through what he thinks is the most terrible time of his whole life. And so the question that's ringing through this whole letter is, who is competent? Who is sufficient? Who is worthy of being a minister of the gospel? Have you ever felt inadequate in what God's calling you to do? Anyone ever, one person has felt inadequate Well, here's the thing. (laughs) You should feel somewhat inadequate when God calls you to do something. When the creator of the universe looks at you and says, hey, do this for me. There's something in us that should say, whoa, (laughs) right? And so what I want to say is that this passage, it's not only terribly weighty in that sense, but it's also tremendously comforting. It's comforting for all of you that just raised your hands. It should be comforting to hear the, the apostle Paul who wrote two-thirds in the New Testament and, you know, the first missionary to Europe and founded all the, you know, he's the reason most of us are here, unless you're Jewish, and he is saying, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient? So I want to ask, where do we find our sufficiency? Now, there was a group that was criticizing Paul that he, he kind of like sarcastically calls the uber apostles, the super apostles. Now, we already know that we already know the answer. All right. But it would be really easy to look at the criticisms that they were making of Paul and saying, well, of course these guys are wrong. They're totally, they're way off base. But when you look at it, I kind of think these are exactly the same things that we typically look for in a leader. 
that we typically look for as evidence of competence to be a minister. So here's the thing. The Uber apostles expected success. And they said, well, look at Paul. He just meets setback after setback. You know, his churches haven't really grown that much. He keeps running into legal issues with the government. You know, he doesn't really seem like a competent guy. The, the super apostles expected technical skill. And they said, well, look at Paul. He's, he's not really that great a speaker. And he's long-winded. I mean, one guy literally fell asleep and died during one of Paul's sermons. And it, it's such a funny account because he, you know, he heals him and then he carries on the sermon. <laughs> The super apostles looked for charisma. And they said, well, Paul, he's not really a great stage presence. You know, he seems kind of weak, kind of soft. And so they looked for pedigree and references. You know, Paul's not really, he doesn't come with great references from, uh, you know, famous uh, or successful people. And so you look at all those things, and aren't those exactly the things that we use to measure competence in a position? And I'd like to suggest not only are those the most common ways of measuring other people, but those are the most common ways that on the inside, we tend to measure ourselves. And we say, well, I can't represent Jesus. I can't do this or that, that I feel like I might be called to because I'm, I'm not successful. I'm not, uh, you know, charismatic. I'm not all of those same exact things. And it's, so there's kind of this inner voice that says, if I don't fit that picture, I don't have what it takes. And, and if you were here a couple of weeks ago, I shared about my own kind of wrestling with that in answering the call that God was putting on my life to, to become a pastor. But there's good news for all of us this morning because the good news is that these are not the measurements that God uses to select his ministers within his kingdom. We're in good company, all right? And all you got to do is read your Bible, because I was kind of laughing at this because I thought you really wouldn't want God as your hiring manager, right? Imagine how some of the, the, the interviews would have gone with people in scripture. Okay, David, we're interviewing you for the role of king of Israel. Do you have any experience? Well, livestock, part-time musician. Uh, <laughs> okay, Peter, we're interviewing you for the position of rock upon which the church will be built you know, do you have any, any previous experience? Well, fishermen, you know, do you have any, any, any prior charges? Well, you know, assault with a deadly weapon. Moses, murderer. Joseph, slave. Gideon, coward. You know, just Noah, drunk. On and on and on and on and on, right? If you're a good business person, these aren't the people that you hire, right? Typically. Actually, in Battelle, these are exactly all the same people that you hire. (laughs) Now, I'm not suggesting that there shouldn't be standards, that there shouldn't be measurements. I'm not saying that each of us shouldn't work diligently to show ourselves approved, as it also says in scripture. Um, What I'm saying is that Paul thinks these things are laughable, if you think you could possibly prove 
your competence, your sufficiency to Jesus through those things. If you think you can reduce what makes you worthy to serve him to those things, Paul says, it's a joke. So what is the measurement that Paul uses? I want to read uh, verse 14 to you again. He says, but, and he's, he's referring back to all of the challenges that he's faced, all the challenges to the gospel. He's gone to uh, Troas and he's met this kind of blockage to preaching the gospel. He says, but thanks be to God who always at all times leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere to all places. So, Paul uses this image of a triumphal procession. Now, ancient people would have known exactly what he was talking about. The closest we can get around here is that one time when the Eagles won the Super Bowl and they had the, uh, you know, the parade through Philadelphia. And that was meant to be funny, but um, it's a little bit depressing being a Philly sports fan. But he's talking about a Roman victory parade when the emperor and his generals would conquer a new territory. And what they would do is that they would process through the streets of Rome with all of the spoil from their victory. They would go announcing the victory. And actually the person who would herald the victory was called the evangelist. They would herald the good news of the emperor's latest victory. And so the whole city would turn out to see the streams of sacrificial oxen heading to the temple to be offered in in sacrifice to the gods. They would come out to see the masses of captive prisoners being led into slavery. And they would come out to see the hordes of victorious soldiers who just won the victory. And so the streets and the temples would be bursting with people, with the smells of the animals, with the scents of the flowers that would be thrown at the victorious soldiers. And so Paul uses this image, and he only uses it twice in, in the New Testament. The other places where he describes, in Colossians 2, where he describes Jesus as the victorious general parading the powers of darkness um, in triumphal procession. But if you read closely in what we just read, Paul's saying that Jesus leads us in triumphal procession. And so you have to ask, where are we in that victory parade? Are we the sacrificial oxen? Are we the captive prisoners? Are we the victorious soldiers? And in a sense, we're all three. That's what I want to get into this morning. So, The surprising thing you would expect, if Paul's using this picture, you would expect Paul, you know, we're more than conquerors in Christ. You'd expect him to put himself among the victorious soldiers, right? And yet that's not what he does. He's not a soldier conquering with Christ. Rather, he's saying he's one of the captives. He's one of the conquered enemies. And whenever this word is used um, in the Bible and other Greek literature, it's talking about the captives, And so the first standard that Paul uses for ministers of the the gospel is that they must be conquered by Christ. They are the vanquished. If you want to join the parade, it has to be as a captive. We don't come to Jesus kind of on our own terms, negotiating with him like equal powers, and we come out with a nice treaty where he gets something and we get something. No, the only way into the parade is as a captive. Scripture says, actually, apart from Christ, we're not just 
kind of disinterested, innocent bystanders. It says we're actually enemies of Christ. And that when we come into the kingdom, it's because he's conquered us as his enemies and he's brought us into service to him. We come as vanquished and vanquished means utterly defeated. And I see your faces. You're saying, Ian, I thought church was about good news. And the good news is that Jesus conquers not through force, but through relentless love. And Paul's flipping this image that is so, so well understood by oppressed people throughout the world and particularly his readers because they knew exactly what it was to be conquered by the Romans, to be shoved down by the Romans, to be enslaved by the Romans and people who've been uh, oppressed by imperial forces throughout history know exactly what this is talking about. But unlike a Roman general, a Roman general would demand the death of his prisoners. Jesus is the general who gives his own life for his enemies. And when they become his prisoners, they become joyful captives, joyful prisoners. The beginning of the Christian life is this joyful exchange of everything that we have for everything that Christ has. And so Paul's hinting here that what it looks like to live in Christ, uh, it, it, it doesn't always look like a victorious soldier. In fact, a lot of times it looks like being a captive, being a prisoner. And just the other day, I was, I was trying to help somebody, counsel somebody who desperately needs something like Betel. And, he's, and the person said, you know, you have to submit to all these rules. No one wants to be caged up like that. And I know exactly where he's coming from. And yet, when you captivate yourself to Jesus, when you enslave yourself to Jesus, you know, Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody. All of us serve someone, something. And if you're not serving Jesus, you're serving something else. Even if it's yourself, you are in slavery to something. And Jesus is the only general. He's the only master that when you serve him, your whole life flourishes because it's in right relation to the way the universe was always meant to be. And so slavery to him, captivity, prisoner to Jesus is the most joyful existence that there can be. And that's what Paul knew. And so what does it look like to be conquered? It means you raise the white flag. You say, Jesus, I give up. I'm done. Take me. Right? We lift our hands in worship and it could be a symbol of surrender. You stop fighting. You're completely at the general's mercy. You go where he leads you to go because it's not on your terms. You're not holding on to a piece of your sovereignty. A captive soldier no longer has a seat at the negotiation table. <laughs> and so here's the first test that Paul gives us. The vanquished are those who have given up. Given up themselves to him. Given up their sovereignty to him. And so I want to ask you, has Jesus vanquished you? Has he conquered your heart, your will, your body? 
Have you given up every other measure of success and worthiness before him? Have you given up your feeble attempts to try and justify and and, and negotiate with him? You can't do that. The only way we can come to him is by totally surrendering ourselves. And so it brings us to the second standard that Paul uses. In verse 15, he says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And so God is spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him through these joyful captives. Now, when I think about, uh, you know, a bunch of captive prisoners being led by the Romans through the streets, it's it's probably not the most pleasant aroma. (laughs) And yet, The word that's used for aroma here, it's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to the pleasant aroma of the burnt offering before God. And so you see that Paul's drawing our attention now away from the soldier, from from the captives, now to the sacrificial animals, to the oxen that are being paraded through the streets. And so Paul says the joyful captive, that's what he is, but he's also the completely vulnerable sacrifice before God ready to be fully consumed by him. And so it makes us think of uh, the idea that he, he says more explicitly in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, and, and, and you read through the book of Romans, and it's this great, uh, um, huge uh, treatise on what Jesus has done for us on the cross, the way that he's uh, won us into the kingdom. And he says, in response to everything that Jesus has done, there's only one rational response. There's only one thing that makes sense. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. And he says, this is your rational service. This is your rational worship, holy and pleasing to God. And so it's so amazing. It's so comforting for Paul here and for believers that as you go through life, a lot of times, you know, if if you— you know that there's this thing called the Great Commission. You know you're meant to be, you know, uh, you're meant to spread the good news. You're meant to kind of uh, preach the gospel to people in your life and your words. And, and sometimes it can feel like this horrible pressure because you know that you yourself are imperfect. That if people really know the depths of your life, maybe they wouldn't be so interested in Jesus. And yet what Paul is saying is that your life, as you serve Jesus, your life, the smell, the aroma that it gives off when you're serving Jesus, it's not your own aroma. It's his. It's the aroma of Christ. And so that is such a weight off of our soldiers that, uh, off, off of our shoulders that Yes, we go and we preach the news and we baptize and we teach everyone how to follow Jesus and what he said. But what we're preaching is not us and our testimony and our goodness. It's him. And so the life of the believer exudes Christ as it's lived out to God as an offering of gratitude. The Christian life is not a, a, it's not a sin offering. Jesus already offered the perfect sacrifice for sin. The life of a Christian is a thanks offering. It's a gratitude offering. It's already done. It's already finished. All the sin is paid for. It's done and dusted. The the tab is covered. Now, this is a gratuity. This is a thank you. That's what we live the Christian life out of. And as we do that, 
people see Jesus. If we go through life, uh, you know, constantly like, oh, well, are you a Christian? Well, I'm trying to be, you know, I'm, I'm trying really hard. You know, people see that as, that, I don't know what good news there really is in that. But if you go through life and people see you going through struggles, you're going through hard times, and, and they see you speaking well of God, they see you living out a life of gratitude. Why are you doing this? Well, because Jesus did it for me first. What else could I do? I'm grateful to him. And so it's that thanks offering that proclaims the beauty of the free gift that we have in the gospel. But then there's, there's this next part in what we just read that I think brings the, the seriousness of all of this into focus. Because as the life of the believer proclaims the gospel, as we proclaim the good news of Jesus, of Jesus it means that we're representing him. And it says God uses us as instruments of mercy and at the same time of judgment. It doesn't mean we go around judging people. It means that the the fragrance of Jesus, Jesus said, I came to bring a sword of division because what Jesus's presence does on the earth is that it divides. We know that Jesus unites, but there's a sense in which the gospel actually in, in the book of John, it says he will be lifted up As Moses lifted the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man will be lifted up that whoever believes in him, and it goes on to say in verse 16, will not perish but have eternal life. And so the image of that serpent on the pole is that the people had to look to it to be healed. But if they looked away from it, that same symbol became a symbol of judgment because it was serpents that were actually biting the people. Serpents as a symbol of of sin and the fall. And so when you look to Jesus lifted on the cross, that is a symbol of good news. That's a symbol of salvation. And yet at the very same time, because it's a symbol of salvation, as you turn away from it, that same symbol becomes a symbol of judgment, of the seriousness of sin. And so this is why Paul says there's two paths. There's two trajectories. There's a trajectory from death to death. And there's a trajectory from life to life. And I'd like to suggest Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, life is in him. If you're on the path towards him, you're on a trajectory from life more and more into life. And if you're on a trajectory away from him, you're already on a path towards death. And it's a path that leads further and further into death as you get further away from the source of life. And so for those perishing, Paul says, Jesus is He's a turnoff. He's, he's repugnant. And so it leads to greater and greater disconnection. For those being saved, Christ is the sweetest smell. And it leads increasingly more and more into life because you're heading more and more into the source of eternal life. And so that's what the proclamation of the gospel does. It either becomes a source of everlasting hope if you see Jesus and you throw yourself on on his mercy at the cross, it becomes a source of everlasting hope. And yet, we know it also becomes a source of everlasting offense, of alienation from God. This is why Jesus called himself the rock of offense. The rock of offense, either you trip on it or you find your safety on it. And so, man, this this is eternal stuff. This is, extremely weighty 
uh, serious stuff. And so what a responsibility that every follower of Jesus bears in carrying out this representation. And so no wonder Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for these things? And the word sufficient can also be translated worthy, uh, qualified, competent. Who is worthy to talk about these things? And I think it's a good question to ask. And I think Paul's response is that our response to that question, our answer to that question can only come out of complete humility. How can we possibly try and claim that we are competent in ourselves to talk about these kinds of things? We have to be completely vulnerable before God, completely vulnerable before other people and claim that we don't, the reason I'm worthy to talk about this stuff is not because of me. It has nothing to do with me. It's because Jesus is worthy on my behalf. He did everything for me and I'm just talking about him. I'm one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And so the best that we can do is offer ourselves to God as living sacrifices. We were his enemies and now we pour ourselves out in gratitude. And so the second standard here that Paul gives us is that, um, is to be vulnerable. The vulnerable are those who are giving all. And so it brings us to our third and final qualification And I was doing a little bit of research and I came across a very sad statistic. According to Barna Research Group, 80% of pastors feel unqualified and discouraged in their role as pastor. And it blows my mind because this is at a time where there's more degrees, more training courses, more books, more conferences, more podcasts, more media to equip leaders than ever. There's leadership conferences, there's everything. And yet 80% of pastors still feel unqualified and discouraged. And so in light of that, I think there's a wonderful message for us here. Wonderful message for me too, which is this. As good and desirable and helpful as all those tools are, you cannot use them as measures of worthiness to serve God. It doesn't mean don't get them. It doesn't mean don't study. It doesn't mean that those things aren't valuable. What it means is if you're trying to build your spiritual CV, your spiritual, what do you call it here? Uh, Resume on those things, Paul's saying it's a joke. Do you really think you've studied enough so much that you can represent the God of of the universe? Do you really think you're spiritual enough? You know, you've spoken in tongues enough to, to really introduce people to the Holy Spirit. Do you really think that you have it within yourself? And so, you know, I'm, I'm preaching to myself here too, guys, because I have that overachiever streak in me. And when I, I fail at something, I, I, have the tendency to take it quite hard. Um, But Paul looks at all those things. He looks at people who are basing all of their worthiness uh, as servants of God in those things. And he has no problem saying, if that is your resume before God, you're a false apostle. That's, that's not a basis. It's a ridiculous claim. And Paul even, he, you know, there's this famous passage where he says, look, let me, let me do something that's absolutely ridiculous. Let me boast about myself for a minute. 
right? And he lays out all of his human qualifications. And Paul is far better qualified than any of his critics. And yet Paul says, these are all worthless compared to knowing Christ. I count it all as dirty rags. And so I don't want you to get me wrong. All these things are good. They're desirable. You should uh, do your utmost to study, to, to learn, to experience and practice more of the Holy Spirit and all of these things. But they are, they're good things, but they are never sufficient things. They cannot make you worthy. Our sufficiency must come from a higher source. And we've talked about being uh, the vanquished prisoners, the, the vulnerable sacrifices. And there's even a kind of Christian-y way to turn those things into, you know, acts to be proud of. You know, I repent better than anybody else. You know, when I sin, I run up to the front and I cry and I wail. And, you know, <laughs> remember Jesus' story about the Pharisee repenting publicly? You can't even bank on your act of surrender or your act of self-sacrifice. If you're self-consciously martyring yourself, Jesus says, guess what? Even that's not enough. Paul tells us the only thing that's enough is the one who is fully worthy, fully competent, fully sufficient, and that is Jesus. Jesus must be the one who's vanquished our hearts, who's made him, he's the one who made himself vulnerable for our sake, the one who looked at us in utter grace when we didn't deserve it, and he said, come become my son. Come become my fellow heir of God in this kingdom. And so the third thing here is that the victorious are those given to him. They are the victorious sons. And so, Where does the worthiness of a son come from? It doesn't come from performance. It doesn't come from uh, even great repentance. The worthiness of a son comes from the fact that he's a son. That's why the father loves the son. That's why the father loves his daughter, simply because they're his kids. And so earlier on, we asked, which one are we in that triumphal procession? Are we the captive? Are we the living sacrifice? Are we the victorious soldiers? And so, In all of those things, you see that Jesus went before us. He is the vanquished king, the one who gave his own life up to his enemies. He's the one that humbled himself and surrendered himself to death to become our sacrificial lamb. He's the lamb of God who submitted willingly to the cross for our sakes. And now he offers the perfectly pleasing aroma to God on the cross. And he's the victorious son that won the conquest and was given all authority over the kingdom. And then anyone to whom he turns and says, you're part of my family. You're part of, of, of my kingdom. He has the authority to transfer that sonship to. And so the only way we can be worthy is if we're in him. And it's interesting You know, Paul never uses the word Christian in all of his writings. Paul's most common way to reference what it means to, we now refer to as being a Christian, is to be in Christ. He uses that phrase dozens of times. And so his description of the essence of being a Christian is to be in Christ. It's an identity. 
It's, it's a location of our being. And so if Jesus makes us his own, then we gain everything that he has. We gain all of his inheritance. If I'm found in him, if you're found in him, it means you're able to bank on all of his authority, all of his worthiness, all of his goodness, all of his sufficiency. And so that's the incredible message that not only did he come to, you know, capture us and make us his slaves, not only did he come that we would be his sacrificial, you know, sacrifices, but he came that we would be his victorious sons. He said to his disciples, I no longer call you servants, but now I call you friends. Right? And so in every moment, what Paul knew is in all these circumstances that he went through, what they became was uh, rather than an opportunity to question his competence, uh, to question his worthiness before God, which is what we so commonly do, he saw it as an opportunity to rely on him even more. So that's why in verse, uh, in chapter 1, 9, uh, he says, through all the suffering, all the questions he'd been wrestling with, he said, it, it makes us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And then at the, towards the conclusion of the letter, when he's talking about all these things that he's had to go through, he says, he's learned where his sufficiency comes from. He says, God told him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. And so, when we go through moments of weakness, when we go through even moments of failure, rather than being disqualifiers of our worthiness to God, they're actually opportunities to experience more of God's power, to boast more in Jesus's worthiness. And so it makes me ask, what, what does this look like? How do we, when everything else in life is judged by these common human standards that Paul's critics were laying on him, well, how do we recognize the kind of ministry that's finding its sufficiency in Jesus alone, that speaks in him and not in itself. And I think like Paul reveals in this letter, it's best seen in the moments of weakness rather than the moments of strength. It's best seen when our hopes are withheld. And and most of the time, that's when you get to see what's really going on underneath the surface. And so Paul actually gives us three marks of authentic ministry. And he ends uh, with this uh, verse in 17. He says, For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And so there's three tests here. Sincerity, boldness, and holiness. And so our ministry, your ministry as a servant of Jesus, it has to be marked by sincerity. It's a mark of someone who's living out of grace and gratitude that they don't feel that they have to pretend to be perfect. It's actually okay to be vulnerable and show the the cracks in, in the perfection because it's not about your own perfection. It's about him. And so it gives you the vulnerability. If you're not operating in grace, the only place it leads to is hypocrisy. Because if you're counting on your own worthiness, 
The only way you can do that is by faking it. And so it's only grace that actually gives you the ability to live freely, to be vulnerable before God and before other people. Secondly, it's boldness. And here's the thing. Sometimes I meet Christians who are kind of like, they're almost like proud of how messed up they are. You know, and there's a sense in which Paul is kind of saying that, but, but like, it's also true. God doesn't want to leave you in whatever state of brokenness you're in. He, he does desire healing and growth and growing up into maturity. And so there's a sense in which boldness is also a mark of this because when you're banking yourself on his authority, on his commission, it gives you a boldness that you couldn't otherwise have. And all the genuine ministries that, that I've known and that I, I, I respect and look up to, they're marked by these two things, both this kind of sincerity and humility, but also this boldness. Um, because the power's not in us, it's in him. And then lastly, the third thing is holiness. And he says, living in the sight of God, which is God's holy presence. And if you've lost a sense of God's holiness, then it's likely that your sense of sufficiency has found some other place. It's not in him. And so the recipe for our sufficiency is this. Give up, give all, and give yourself to him. Why don't we pray together as uh, worship teams um, head back up and just close with a, a chorus. And I want to offer an opportunity for any, anyone who may be here or online or in McCungie who has never done these things in respect to Jesus, given up your own pride, given up your own ways of doing things, given your all, just given yourself to him and said, Jesus, take me and do whatever you want with me because your way is better than mine. And you haven't yet found identity in him. There's an invitation that's open to you right now. And Jesus says, come to me and I will make you my victorious son. And so you can come to him and just talk to him and say, Jesus, I'm so sorry for how I've turned away from you. I've been, I've been on a path to destruction. Jesus, I want to turn around and get on your path of life towards you. Thank you that you died for me, that you resurrected, that I can have a new life in you. Jesus, I want to follow you. Please give me your Holy Spirit. Amen. And amen simply means, may it be so. <laughs> so let's pray. Why don't you stand with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that, number one, you've called every single person to join this victory parade. Jesus, you have conquered sin and death and all the powers of darkness, and you resurrected. You've won the victory. And Jesus, you've invited us into that victory. Thank you, Jesus, because there is no way that we could have ever won that on our own. So Jesus, we come to you right now and we give you everything. We give up all of our own uh, pride and, and worthiness, Lord, and say, Jesus, you are the only thing on earth that makes us worthy. And because we're found in you, Jesus, we can be sincere. We can be open with who we really are. We can be bold because we're standing in your authority. Jesus, thank you so much for this ministry. And would you empower us by your Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus, amen. 
Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.